Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. If you were a regular listener to the Morning Shift podcast, thanks for switching over and staying with us. If you're brand new, welcome. We're happy to have you. We know it's not always easy to listen to a two-hour show in the middle of the day, so we'll curate and send you some of our favorite moments from Reset in a 20-minute-ish package, perfect for your commute home or while you're getting ready for dinner. And today we'll hear from some heavy hitters. A bit later, former journalist and UN ambassador Samantha Power stops by to talk about her time working under President Obama. I felt as though he took my arguments into account and landed in a different place. And above all, I guess what I'd say is on the vast majority of issues, I was in lockstep with him. But first, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle submitted her 2020 budget to the county board. And here are some facts. It's about $6.2 billion, and about two-thirds of that money is for the hospital system and public safety. There won't be any layoffs of county employees, and residents won't have any new taxes or raised taxes under this budget. Preckwinkle says this budget, the ninth of her tenure as president, is a reflection of years of hard choices and difficult decisions. We started out in in our first budget cycle with a $487 million gap to close. We made 15% cuts. We laid off about 1,500 people. We had to raise some taxes and fees. Uh, But we got through those first few difficult years, and as a result, the benefits of, as I said, those hard choices and difficult decisions have have come to us today. We had a a gap of about $18.7 million to close, and we were able to do that with uh, some judicious uh, review of our of our spending. And as you said, uh, it's important, I think, for our listeners to remember where the money goes. It goes to health care for people who are uninsured and underinsured, and it goes to our criminal justice and public safety system. Half of our money goes to health care, and about uh, 37%, I think, goes to criminal justice, public safety. Now, you recently said that what scares you most about this budget is the amount of medical care Cook County Health provides without getting paid for it. It's known as uncompensated care. And that's set to hit nearly $600 million next year. Do you have a plan to address that issue? Well, let me begin with how we got here. You know, President Trump, of course, uh, has made it a a priority to do everything he can to destroy President Obama's legacy. And an important part of that legacy, of course, is the Affordable Care Act. And so what he's done, not having majority in the House to repeal the Affordable Care Act, is chip away at the edges, investing less in marketing the Affordable Care Act programs, including Medicaid expansion, investing less in staff that would help people enroll and re-enroll in Medicaid expansion programs like county care. And at the state level, uh, Bruce Rauner, our previous governor, in order to to reduce the Medicaid rolls, stopped processing applications for enrollment and re-enrollment. So you may have been eligible to enroll in Medicaid or to re-enroll, and you have to do that every year, prove up your eligibility. And the state of Illinois deliberately sat on 170,000 applications for Medicaid participation. 170,000 people who were denied participation because the state didn't bother to vet their applications. So um, when Governor Pritzker came in, of course, he had to deal with this backlog. And my understanding is they've gotten the backlog uh, down to close to 100,000. 
uh, in the last what, seven or eight months here, but they still have a ways to go. And the result, of course, is that there are fewer people enrolled in Medicaid in our program and, and across the state, across the country, actually, Medicaid enrollment has gone down. And people who we care for, who had Medicaid uh, coverage, we continued to care for them, even though their coverage lapsed because the state was not processing their applications. So that came to be uncompensated care rather than care for which we could build the insurance company, in this case, the, the Medicaid program. So is there a plan to, to address that $600 million? Well, here's the thing. I mean, it, it's been a significant number all the way along. We have a challenge going forward to try to figure out how we're going to deal with this uncompensated care issue. And it's it's increased. The uncompensated care number has increased by $100 million in the last two years. It was always a significant part of our care because we take whoever comes to our door, and I'm proud of it. For 180 years, we've taken whoever comes to our door, regardless of their race, religion, their economic status, their insurance status, whether or not they're documented. There's 68 hospitals in Cook County, 68. We have two, Stroger on the west side, Providence on the south side. But those two hospitals provide more than 50%, it's about 51% of all of the charity care that's delivered in Cook County. And so the situation we find ourselves in is that a number of the other actors in the healthcare ecosystem have not, frankly, stepped up to help provide care for those who are uninsured or underinsured uh, or undocumented. Are you in a position to bring any pressure to bear on other hospitals, private hospitals, to pick up a little more of, of the slack? We're going to be looking at a variety of options to try to address the challenges we face. Um, in my view, the unwillingness up to this point of, of, uh, of many of our private hospitals to pick up more of this obligation and responsibility uh, is discouraging. I want to turn to uh, another big chunk of the budget, President Preckwinkle. That's, of course, public safety. You've allocated $1.3 billion to this issue, which is the second highest expenditure in the budget. Tell us about what's included in that money. Well, the the public safety arena is our courts and our jail. And uh, as you're well aware, Jen, we've worked for the last nine years to try to make our criminal justice system more fair. Um, And what we've done is focus on cash bond, and bond court, because that's the portal of entry into the criminal justice system. And when I came into office, there were ten or 11,000 people in the jail on a daily basis. Uh, and we focused on bond court because we knew that, that, as I said, that's the portal, the port of entry. We found that many people accused of low-level nonviolent crimes, shoplifting, low-level drug offenses, not paying their child support, were in jail because they couldn't pay even nominal bonds. And, you know, the, the, the way in which this works, you have a $10,000 bond, you have to put up $1,000 cash. For many people, $1,000 cash is just an impossibility, even if they were there for, as I said, a low-level drug offense. Um, so what we did was say, you know, look, if you're accused of a, of a nonviolent crime, the presumption ought to be that you uh, are out in the community going to work, going to school, um, and that you have that opportunity and then show up for your hearings and your trial. Rather than being detained in jail, um, for, as I said, shoplifting or low-level drug offenses. So focusing on bond court and with the support of um, Chief Judge Evans and with the support of the state's attorney, Kim Fox, and the, and the public defender, Amy Campanelli, uh, bond court changed significantly, and many, many, many more people were released on their own recognizance. 
or with uh, electronic monitoring, EM. And now we have about 6,000 people in the jail. So we've had a dramatic reduction and no increase in public safety challenges. Actually, in the city of Chicago, starting from a high water mark in 2016, we've had fewer shootings and murders every year, year over year. So fewer few shootings and murders in 2017 than 2016. In 2018 than 2017, we're on track in 2019 to be lower than 2018. So at the same time that we're pursuing these, vigorously pursuing these bond court reforms, the violence in the city of Chicago has gone down. Now, it's still at unconscionable levels, and it's a real tragedy in many of our communities which are so impacted by the violence and the trauma. Uh, but I, I think it's important to understand that, it, that what's, these two things are happening simultaneously, the bond court reforms and the reductions in the violence. Well, we should mention that you and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot haven't always been on the same page around how to address public safety and the way bond reform fits in with that. But you've been meeting over the last three weeks to talk about criminal bond reform. What can you tell us about those meetings and how you're working together on this issue? The mayor and I met about uh, three weeks ago, and our staffs continue to meet, um, and those discussions are ongoing, and we hope that there can be some consensus that emerges around this. I want to talk about something that is still on the table. The county faces a projected budget gap of $109 million in 2021. That number steadily rises to about $307 million by 2024. What is the plan, or what is your thinking right now around how to tackle that perhaps without raising taxes or adding fees? You know, my staff will be working over the next year uh, with our separately electeds and the offices under the president uh, to address the challenges faced by our 2021 budget. But I'm very grateful that we have been uh, able this year to present once again a balanced budget and to do that without any increase in existing taxes. Is that a feasible plan going forward? It's hard to know what challenges you face, um, We don't know what the economy is going to be like. Uh, We're going to work on effectively addressing our uh, uncompensated care challenges in the health care system. So there are all kinds of uh, uh, factors that um, impact our ability to to have a balanced budget and to uh, manage the budget gap that's there. So we've got a lot of work to do over the next year, and we'll do that in the same diligent way that we've addressed these challenges in the past. What would you say to county residents listening to us right now who are relieved to hear there aren't Uh, new taxes or or fees in this budget, but who are very concerned about the ability to stay in Cook County if taxes and fees continue to rise? Is there any assurance you can give them? Well, we faced our our biggest budget challenge in the first year that I came in office. We made 15% cuts. The first thing that you have to do in government is look at how you can be more efficient and effective, and we'll always begin there. Uh, That's how we begin to address our budget challenges, and that's our our first uh, consideration. Um, And subsequent to that, having uh, made whatever reductions and and efficiencies that we can, we'll look for other resources. But, you know, we've managed over the last several years under difficult circumstances to balance our budget uh, without uh, raising existing taxes. We will try to do that going forward, but it's hard to make a commitment to what your budget is going to look like a year from now, uh, given the uncertainty. That's Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me, Jen. I'm pleased to be on your first new program. Samantha Power first made a name for herself as a war correspondent covering the Balkans in the 1990s. In 2002, she wrote the book A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. It earned her a Pulitzer Prize. 
Power went on to become an advisor to then-Senator Barack Obama during his presidential campaign. And during his second term, she was named U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Her new book is a memoir called The Education of an Idealist. In it, she talks about the realities she faced when switching from a life of critiquing foreign policy to executing foreign policy. We had promised that we were going to recognize the Armenian genocide. uh, And so I, I just tell the story in the book of pushing water uphill and being all alone in these meetings as as others were understandably, again, looking at the, the Turkey relationship and not wanting to rock the boat. President Obama himself was so busy uh, trying to pull us out of this horrific economic recession. And so ultimately, I lost internally, bureaucratically, but I hadn't had the chance to have a conversation in person with Senator Obama to really make the case for why it, there would be short-term pain for sure and, and maybe even you know, instability that would be uncomfortable, but that ultimately we were America and that Turkey needed us uh, far more than we needed Turkey. So I didn't have the chance to to have that conversation. That was a lesson about layers and bureaucracy and how if people don't agree with you, the last thing they're going to do is set you up (laughs) to talk to the president. So it led to a very tense discussion where he gave me, you know, his logic, which actually was rooted in trying to make peace between Turkey and Armenia and believing that it would be very disruptive in the moment. I believe the logic was completely flawed and that he... Was that disappointing? Oh, it was crushing. No, I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, to, not to mince words, but my water broke <laughs> within a, a month early. So my son, uh, Declan, was actually born on Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day. I mean, I was so, it was so upsetting also to feel like the process hadn't been quite right, that we hadn't had time to really deliberate. But it was also a rude awakening. I mean, that's Washington. And and given the vast number of issues the president is thinking about every day, you don't always get in to get to make your case. Um, but how does that challenge your personal integrity to feel like you're like you're right? You're on the right side of history. But the person tasked with making these decisions has to take all of these other things into account and and may not land on the same side as you. I think if at any point I had thought that he had started tuning me out or, you know, that he was out for himself or his own personal enrichment or, you know, things that were just inconceivable but that now we think more about, that would have been different. But fundamentally, it wasn't as if there wasn't a counterargument to what I was saying. It wasn't as if... He wasn't weighing a set of variables that were extremely worth weighing. And and so whether on this or on something like Syria that got more attention, I felt as though I was heard. I felt as though he took my arguments into account and landed in a different place. And above all, I guess what I'd say is on the vast majority of issues, I was in lockstep with him. I think if if this had become a pattern and I felt you know that I was – the kind of cosmetic um, human rights person who was there so everybody could feel better about ultimately landing in, in different places and increasing military assistance to Saudi Arabia every month uh, or something like that, then then that would have felt very different. But I, I really thought in my lifetime, I mean, to have a president who had a, a life background also analogous to mine in many ways, but who wanted a team of rivals, who, yes, had to make tough calls, who was seeing a different field than I was seeing – and that was going to land in a different place for me, I mean, as one would expect uh, some of the time, I consistently felt this is where you want to be. And and if your batting average is not 
a thousand. Uh, that would not, you know, it would be very unusual for your batting average to be a thousand. President Obama's constant fear of military intervention was that the U.S. would get trapped in protracted engagements like the Iraq War. And you advocated unsuccessfully for military action in Syria after the al-Assad regime crossed Obama's red line of using chemical weapons on civilians. You were successful regarding strikes against Gaddafi's regime in in Libya. Both countries are now knee-deep in civil wars. And I wonder, when you think back to those decisions things you would have done differently, ways you would have pressed in maybe a little harder? Well, every Obama administration official that I've talked to about their regrets from our time together, they're all moments where people fail to speak up and say what was on their mind. No, Nobody regrets going on too long in a meeting. They maybe should. I should probably. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure President Obama regrets that I did. He let me go on too long in meetings. And that's why I write the book in in a way that exposes the the flesh and blood humanity really of those moments where where you know you don't have to ever be in the situation room to be able to relate to not wanting to feel uh, like you're overstepping or that you're getting into somebody else's lane or that you're not being sufficiently deferential or that you're new and and want to wait a while as you watch the conversation unfold, but. You know, I guess one of the lessons of the education of an idealist is if it's on your mind, say it. When you were an activist, what did you not understand about the possibilities and limitations of diplomacy? And as a diplomat, did your views towards activism change? As an activist, I always tried to put myself in the shoes of the decision maker when I got into the Situation Room, I, I felt in my head a bit of an intruder alert because I had been an activist and a reporter even. And as I'm taking notes in meetings, I'm thinking, do people think that I'm taking these notes for some other reason than that I don't trust my memory? Or, you know, um, do they think I'm going to like be giving these notes to somebody? So I was very self-conscious about being an outsider uh, in the room where it happens. But fundamentally, the the most effective activism I was ever a part of from the outside respected the situated self. So when we were activating over Darfur, for example, really understanding how saddled the Bush administration was through its own mistakes, but with the Iraq war and how that had undermined trust in the international system. When I was in the White House as President Obama's human rights advisor, the best advocacy was situated. It was we know you're trying to get out of uh, uh, Iraq and draw those troops down. We know you need supply lines um, and that Russia now is offering potentially to help you uh, crazily back in the days of the reset with Putin, you know, be able to supply your troops in Afghanistan. Nonetheless, his crackdown on LGBT rights and on civil society in, in Moscow and beyond are issues that you sh- that President Obama should raise his voice on. In other words, really sort of internalizing um, where the policymaker was. And, and I would do that now much more if I were advocating, although with this administration, it's harder because there aren't really very many nodes. It's really the president and his and his more impetuous form of decision-making without a lot of process where these different variables get taken into account. And I, I want to talk about what's happening in the diplomatic corps right now. We're seeing career diplomats being pulled into situations where they're having to balance trust with other countries while also serving at the pleasure of the president. And it seems those two things don't always 
go together and it's a precarious position. So bring us some context to that dynamic. How is the role of diplomacy working today? Poorly to say the least, but not to romanticize even even the past. I'd say that for many decades now, really since the end of the Cold War, we have underinvested in the art and practice and skills and expertise associated with diplomacy. And I tell the story in the book of the morning after the election, gathering my civil servants and foreign servants who were the ones who made me look, to the degree I ever looked smart in the job or effective in the job, it was because of the the work of these uh, incredible crack negotiators who had served under George W. Bush, under Barack Obama, and had um, when I met with them, I, I wanted to say to them, how are you guys doing now that we've been shocked by this election result, and and is everything okay, and, and kind of almost to appeal to them uh, to think about staying on, because I had assumed that they would all want to make for the exits, because many had been involved in negotiating the Paris Climate Treaty, they'd been involved in the Iran uh, nuclear negotiations, they'd built the Ebola coalition to end Ebola in West Africa, for which Obama doesn't get enough credit. So I expected to have a kind of, uh, you know, a pity party almost uh, with my team where I had to kind of bolster them. And one after the other at this town hall, a couple days after the election, just stood up and said, we're staying. We know he doesn't have a lot of expertise around him, that foreign policy hasn't been something that he's been involved in. We want to be here. We want to support um, our leader, irrespective of who that leader is, I mean, it was totally inspiring. I was it, it really, I mean, I was choked up for a lot of reasons in those days, but I was so moved by the just the patriotism and the sense of we serve the country, we don't serve any one person. And I'd say, unfortunately, now nearly three years in, half of those people have have just felt that they were so irrelevant or so uh, dismissed in the course of trying to offer advice uh, that they've um, left the Foreign Service. And so part of the recovery for anyone who comes in will be re-embracing the importance of values and human rights in our foreign policy generally, re-embracing our allies who have been insulted and from whom we have withdrawn, um, you know, from a variety of agreements, but also just from the strong bilateral ties that are the foundation to to global cooperation, but alongside rebuilding our alliances and re-embracing our values, we'll be building back our diplomatic core and in a way that is fit for purpose, that is more fit for 2019 than for 1945. That's former United Nations Ambassador Samantha Power. Her recent memoir, The Education of an Idealist, is out now. Samantha Power, thank you. Thank you, Jen. And that's today's Reset. We look forward to keeping you up on the news of the day and showcasing the people who are working to make your world and your neighborhood a better place. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon on Reset from 91.5 WBEZ, Chicago's NPR news station. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.